Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? What it do, you beautiful savages? We got another great episode. I just wanted to say before we get started, I am doing more than two episodes per week, and I contractually with my sponsors, the people that support my show, uh, I was only getting two per week. That's like what we had agreed to. So I have a lot of room for additional sponsors. And I put out this call to you guys uh, a week ago, and I've gotten a lot of inquiries about smaller ad buys, and I super appreciate that, obviously. But what I would like to do is get someone who can commit to be with me for all of 2023. That's what I'm looking to attain, is to have hopefully two long-term sponsors that want to do the full ad run for the entire year. You will get well over a million and a half based off of my current trajectory, uh, impressions from that, you would probably get far, far more than that. And uh, just based off of growth <clears throat> since I began, it should continue to to increase and it may increase exponentially. So you are basically taking a risk with me that uh, I will continue to grind and deliver and produce more and more eyeballs and earballs for your product to be uh, heard by and seen by. So. If you're interested in doing so, please email me libertylockdownpodcast at gmail.com and uh, let's do some business, huh? Uh, as always, thank you guys for watching, supporting, sharing. This has been the best year ever and it is only getting more insane. And I really appreciate that. Uh, make sure you hit like, comment, and subscribe and enjoy the show. Welcome everybody back to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell, your humble yeah, constitutional defending host. Yeah, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to defend the God dang constitution since no one else will. Uh, we got Ron Coleman with us today. He's the attorney representing, well, I'm going to let him tell you the story because it's, it's pretty complicated, but this is Twitter leak information that has, I would assume is helping his case tremendously. It's a, uh, fascinating story and and one that affects all of us if you're one of the tens of thousands of people that have lost your social media accounts for trying to tell the truth over the past couple of years you understand the political harassment that we are all experiencing it has been exhausting i have been ducking and dodging to keep my account for years now it drives me crazy without further ado ron coleman thank you for joining us how are you clint thanks for having me on i'm great man i'm great and uh I, let me start by saying I appreciate your work, man. I, I like we need we need people like you. So uh, go ahead and tell my audience that's not familiar as to who you're representing the the case and everything else. I'd appreciate it. Sure. So I am a lawyer. I, I um, I'm a partner with Harmeet Dillon in the Dillon Law Group. I'm I was the first partner that uh, joined the firm as an East Coast office we haven't i'm speaking to you from newark new jersey just out my window it's a rainy day in, in metropolitan new york and um we now have offices in virginia uh, metropolitan dc and actually down in south florida where you are oh nice we do I'll, a lot I'll, of need, I'll need your representation here soon i'm sure <laughs> don't don't look for trouble but if you, get, <laughs> but if you have it i am definitely someone that you should consider calling yeah, for sure. So we do a lot of work in civil rights, free speech. Um, I'm very active in social media, as is my partner, Harmeet Dillon. Most of our other partners and colleagues focus more on the work, 
then uh, Harmeet works like a dog, but she's also an incredible media figure. Yes, she is. Uh, I'm just, I'm just a sort of interesting media figure, not like Harmeet, incredible, and I don't work like a dog either. But <laughs> I, I mean, I'm like the halfway point between me and the other lawyers. Anyway, there is a um, a lot of the work we've been doing over the last few years has involved banning people being banned from, you know, from the internet, from social media. And it's been a really, really hard area of law to get any traction with judges on because judges have taken the lead from a number of cases that have been very, very generous in their understanding of Section 230 and the sort of rights that people have on the internet. And we have a very good, and don't have, and what sort of rights media or, or social media platforms do have. And we have a pretty good sense by now of what flies and what doesn't fly. And we're, we're, we're contacted all the time by people who have been banned on social media. And frankly, there is very seldom much that we can do for them. Sure. Uh, I've been friendly with a fellow named Rogan O'Handley for a while. And DC Drano. Yep. DC Drano, as he is better known gazillions of followers on on Instagram. He just got completely unrelated to our, our litigation, just got his Twitter account back after having been banned for the better part of, of, of uh, two years. And I was reminded just how good he is at this. And the fact that Drano is so good means that he is somebody that if you were in the position of censoring social media on behalf of the Democratic Party, you'd want to make sure that he'd be on the list of people that you'd want to censor. Right. So what happened was sometime in 2020, as we, as, as we now know, it actually began in 2016 at the federal, at least at the federal level. Mm -hmm. We didn't know any of the stuff that's been coming out in Twitter files. No one did. Everyone, when I say we didn't know, we knew. Right. Clint, you knew. I knew. We knew that not only was there heavy-duty censorship of conservative voices on social media, but that it was pretty obvious that there was a very firm government hand on some level or another behind it. Yeah. Um, Suspected, but perhaps couldn't prove at that point. Well, one, a lot of things that most of us didn't know was that under the guise of election security, well, actually, let me take another step back. One of the things we've learned from the Twitter files was that the government, presumably the FBI, but for all I know, it was Mark Elias. It was it certainly wasn't Joe Biden, but someone smart sure. among the Democrats came up with this narrative that just as they were able to destroy Trump by accusing him of being in collusion with Russia, they would tell the story where Russia had been manipulating social media, and this was a threat to democracy. <laughs> so what, it, what happened was that a coalition of attorneys general of the various states, 
22 attorneys general who were members of the National Association of Attorneys General. And as you know, an attorney general is the highest law enforcement official of a given state or, or of the United States. By the way, this idea of calling an attorney general general is asinine. <laughs> attorney general is, it comes from the French where the adjective comes after the noun. So when the attorney general of the United States was the attorney general. He was the general attorney. He was, mm. the, he was the big kahuna of attorneys. It didn't mean that he was a general. Right. I can't do anything about that. It's, see, Everett Koop started this with this uh, surgeon, with, with the surgeon general stuff back before you were born, Clint. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, I, you know, my, my complaints go back to, you know, the Lincoln era. So you and me both. <laughs> okay. So without telling a lot of people about it, but congratulating themselves for it, these Democratic attorneys general set up the system in cooperation with the social media companies, where in, under the guise of election security, and in order to get rid of misinformation, mm -hmm. misinformation, a made up word, by the way, right. which combines disinformation, which is a purposeful propagandist uh, spreading of knowingly false information, they combine it with the word misinform. Mm. And a person can be misinformed. So if we say that you're not spreading disinformation, accusing me of spreading disinformation is probably defamatory because you're saying that I know it's false and I'm lying. But if you make up a word and call it misinformation, mm. you've got a little bit of daylight in case <clears> I come <throat> after you. Because, you know, Ron, it's not your fault. You're manipulate. It's your fault that you're letting yourselves be manipulated by the Russians, but you don't really know that it's true. You're just stupid enough to think that it's true. All right. Under the guise of election security, under the guise of, of protecting America from foreign manipulation of the election system, which we now know from the Twitter files was bullshit. It was made up by the FBI or the people telling the FBI what to make up. Even Yoel Roth, not a hero in this story, except no. compared to almost everyone else, right? Is, which is amazing, is pushing back and saying, not not really seeing it. <laughs> we're, yeah. checking, we're checking the data here. We're not. We're not seeing any borscht prints. We're not seeing any empty vodka bottles. We're not <laughs> seeing the evidence. Okay, of what you're calling, uh, but, but fine. Back to the state level, they 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 agree. They work out with the social media companies to have a dedicated portal by which consultants working for the state attorneys general using your money are monitoring social media and flagging misinformation and problematic tweets involving mm -hmm. the election. And they then send that information to uh, the social media companies. And amazingly, 99% of the stuff that's flagged gets taken down. Yeah, just coincidental. 99%. Yep. I had I had multiple friends that were actually in that. Who were taken down th through that program, you're saying? Yeah. I, I, I actually knew people. Uh, Claire Foster, PhD, which is a parody account. Uh, it's a guy, but, it, you know, he's pretending to be a girl. But, yeah, they, they flagged him. I mean, it's un unbelievable stuff. So 
they um we would never have known about this except that Judicial Watch got wind of something, picked up something, and served a Freedom of Information Act or the state version of that in California on the state attorney general. And they realized that this was going on and that, in fact, my client, Rogan O'Handley, had had, we, well, Rogan was banned. He, he, his, his account was taken down in January of 2021 when he made, when he, he tweeted a tweet that said, California elections are rife with corruption. There should be a complete audit. Banned. Banned. Misinformation. Now remember, this is misinformation that supposedly is affecting elections. It's January. Right. Election day is, I know that in our time, election day is a three-month process. <laughs> but election day is November. You can't vote in January. No. Thanks to Judicial Watch, we found out that it wasn't merely some offended snowflake of the left who was uh, who caused this uh, banning of D.C. Drano, but rather he had been flagged multiple times by the state attorney general. Once they put strikes on him, it was only a matter of time until he would be uh, sufficiently offensive to be taken down. He, the information was brought to his attention once it came out from Judicial Watch. He then contacted me and said, Ron, what can we do? And I said, I got great news for you, Rogan. I'm now with a California law firm. I'm with, I'm with Harmeet. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I had necessarily even spoken to him since I had joined Harmeet, which was a year or so earlier. And I think we can help you with this. So I turned it over actually to the California team, which is extremely experienced in free speech. And which also had the comfort with California law and California constitutional law uh, that I wouldn't have had out here in New York. Uh, and they basically put together this uh, complaint suing the state of California, the state attorney general, a number of other parties in connection with this banning. Why? Why? So we already know that the courts have repeatedly given this great deference to social media companies to ban whomever they want. And you've, everyone who's listening to this already knows the refrain, they're private companies. It's a contractual relationship. If you don't like it, build your own Twitter, the whole thing. There's a bright line. Unfortunately, the courts haven't been so bright about finding that line all of a sudden. But in historic, classic, constitutional law, there's a very clear, bright line. When a party that is private starts acting as an arm of the government, mm -hmm. it's not private anymore. It's mm -hmm. now the government. There are two different kinds of government um, involvement with a private company that makes the private company's conduct government conduct. It can either be coercion, mm -hmm. where the government comes up to you and says, here's how it's going to be. You're going to do what we say. Uh, think of, you know, your classic civil rights scenario. The sheriff comes up to, you know, uh, the, the local restaurant and says, listen, no colors allowed in this restaurant anymore, okay? Is there any problems? You give me a call. I'll make sure that, that we get rid of it. Okay? And if you don't, townspeople here have told us they don't want it happening. We're going to take care of you if there's any problems. So now that's coercion. 
they've turned that, that restaurant into an arm of the government. Therefore, what the restaurant does can be ascribed to the government. There's gotcha. another kind of government act, which makes a private actor an arm of the government. And that is where they work jointly, where they both sit down and work out a project and say, listen, we both want this to happen. It's good for me. It's good for you. Again, going down to the the classic, you know, civil rights example, the restaurant owner says, hey, you know, look, no problem. Listen, I don't want them. No one else in town wants them. We'll take it. We're on the same page here. Now they're both working. Now they're both working for the government voluntarily. Mm -hmm. Joint doesn't require a government threat. Now, what happens when the government comes up to your restaurant and says, real nice restaurant you got here, Jeb? It'd be a shame if anything were to happen to it. Sure. So then you can have the argument whether that was coercion, whether that was a threat, but it's going to be one or the other. Okay. That's what happened here. Mm -hmm. Now, we brought this case. Actually, we tried to get it heard in Los Angeles County in the hope that we could get it a little bit further away from Twitter land where the judges are pretty much hypnotized. They, they cannot rule against a tech company on pretty much anything. Yeah, I would imagine um, any any judges around San Francisco probably not going to go your way. It's, pretty, it's really it's really something to see. I mean, you really you could, you know, to use that Trumpian example, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't make a difference. You know, really uh, Jack Jack um I want to say Jack Murphy. I would not say Jack Murphy. Um <laughs> Jack um from, from Twitter Jack, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. What's his Just, name? D. I, I don't know. Dorsey. I'm, Jack Dorsey. Dorsey, thank you. Okay, edit, fix that. Jack Dorsey. <laughs> Jack Dorsey could have walked out onto right in front of Twitter headquarters with a Tommy gun and, you know, shot up a bunch, uh, you know, a bus full of, of, of nuns. Uh, <laughs> and they could even be trans nuns. If, if, if Twitter <laughs> did it, it would be completely okay. So, what do we see? We see that, so we, 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 nonetheless, we're not able to keep the case in Los Angeles County. It ends up in Northern District of California and predictably it's dismissed. They, it's exactly what you'd expect. And the judge wrote a really very long opinion explaining, you know, really going through all the facts and saying, yeah, it doesn't sound like they were really doing, you know, there wasn't really a cause and effect relationship. You know, they, they're making they're making suggestions and you're following them. Ninety nine percent, folks. Right. Ninety nine percent. So let me explain something about what it means to make a motion to dismiss com a complaint. Motion to dismiss a complaint. I've actually written on this topic in a in a, a textbook for lawyers. In federal practice, it's called Rule Twelve B Six. And when, and when someone sues, when A sues B, B can bring can either answer the complaint or bring a motion to dismiss. And there are different kinds of motions to dismiss. One of them is, you have no jurisdiction over me. And another one is, and there are many other kinds, but the, the most common one, the one you tend to hear about is, you've not stated a claim for which, for, relief, for which relief can be granted. Meaning, even if everything you say in the complaint is true, and the Supreme Court says, a court has to read it as if it were true unless it's utterly implausible, unless you're, you're simply saying stuff that can't, no one could believe. Mm -hmm. So once you, the judge has to read the allegations as if they were true and 
as long as there is a legal basis, a legal basis for the claim, it has to now proceed to discovery. And then you find out whether or not you really made a case. Sure. That's a, considered to be a very low standard. The standard is what we lawyers call the, it's a pleading standard. It's a notice standard. All we're supposed to be able to do is, all we're obligated as a plaintiff to do is Twitter has to know what we're suing about on California and the other defendants have to know what we're suing about. And then the judge has to say, okay, if it's true, would there be any law that would apply to this? The judge agreed with us that there would be law that applied to it, but he found that we were going, it was a bridge too far to claim that because Twitter said it, I'm sorry, that because because the, the, the state of California said it, Twitter did it. That's the wrong standard. Yeah, for sure. Especially because under the strict pleading, notice standard pleading, I shouldn't have to put any evidence whatsoever into a complaint, into a lawsuit. All, right. All I have to actually do technically to meet my obligations to say, I was crossing the street. You missed the, uh, the light was, was green for me. You had a red light. You drove through it and you hit me. I don't have to put a picture or video, an affidavit. I just have to say that it happened. The judge has to believe it. Mm -hmm. So when you have cases like this, though, that are, that have a lot of moving parts and where you know there's a lot of political weight involved and where there's also a judicial trend you're trying to buck, to buck. It's very common to do what we did, which is to, although we're not obligated to do so, load up that complaint with as much evidentiary material as you can. Right. To say, judge, if you have any question about the plausibility of our claims, here are the smoking guns. And, and we have an email that says, flag this, flag this account. Right. Okay. It's not, it's not like you're saying there's 81 million votes for Joe Biden. I mean, this is, this is a feasible claim that you're making here. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> I, you can use that as an example because one of the other, one of the other tweets that resulted in a, in a, in a, um, uh, a strike for, for Rogan was a picture of, the, the the disgusting um, fortress that they turned the Capitol into right. during the inauguration, and under underneath underneath um, Rogan had written eighty one million votes. That was his political commentary. Now, th again, we've got the smoking guns. We've got the cause and effect. We've got this special uh, system. It should be enough for any judge to say, I don't even understand why the state of California has any business monitoring tweets. If you tell me that there was a tweet that came to our attention or there was a tendency or a trend of people tweeting actually false information, don't bother voting in such and such county. Right. They closed the precinct. Go pound Jill. It's tough luck. Mm-hmm. So that would be misinformation that might affect people's civil rights and their ability to vote. That's pretty far out there. But either lying about election security in general, now it doesn't matter whether or not, one of the questions that we got on the, from the appeal panel was, well, are you allowed to, you know, they're looking for misinformation, right? Right, well, they're not really supposed to be doing that. People misinform each other all the time in fact, Twitter was about 
nothing but misinformation about the election, about COVID, about COVID treatments, about Russia, about Trump. Happens all the time, okay? Under the First Amendment, we don't give the government the power to make sure that only true or officially tr certified as true statements are made, okay? That's number one. And number two, pretty much everything uh, Drano said was an, was, a, was an expression of opinion. Right. I mean, we ended up on the appeal at one point, a judge was saying, well, isn't the claim that, isn't his claim that California elections are rife with fraud? Isn't that a false statement of fact? If it, let, let's say it's, let's say it's false. That would be, that would be misinformation, right? Again, let's say it were, shouldn't make a damn bit of difference. People right. lie all the time. But the fact is, it's not. It's an opinion rife with. What's rife with? What's your opinion of what's rife with? Is it as bad as Illinois? Is it as bad as Florida? Is it as, as bad? It's a matter of opinion. Rife is an opinion. It is a subjective measurement. But again, none of this should even matter. We're at, you know, it was a little bit frustrating when we appealed this and we were in San Francisco a few weeks ago, um, just when the Twitter files started coming out and we saw that Guess what? Surprisingly, this wasn't just state governments. It was being done by the federal government as well, which, you know, hopefully the judges recognize, even though it's not part of our appeal because it's it's not part of our record. But in terms of credibility, I mean, in terms of plausibility, they have to recognize it's if they ever had doubts that this was happening, it is happening. But what was frustrating, Kyle, I'm, I'm sorry, what was frustrating, Clint, I'm looking at Kyle's name up in the upper left corner. Yeah, no, no problem. Uh, was that they didn't seem bothered by the fact that the government was working with social media to monitor content. And if the Ninth Circuit doesn't get this right, then we know what we have to do next. It doesn't mean the Supreme Court will agree with us that they have to hear it, but it is a um, something that definitely has to happen because yeah. this is a gigantic civil rights problem and we're now finding out just how deep it went and just how problematic it is and, um, you know, that's, so that's the very long story of what really should be a very, you know, we should have been well underway with litigation by now. And it is very, very troubling how many judges just seem way too comfortable, way too comfortable with this. And um, nonetheless, what, you know, not only, not only judges, unsurprisingly, the media also, we've gotten very very little pick up on this story yeah well and, and and they rely on the first amendment to do their jobs and yet these people i mean i think that they've just kind of realized that they're more in alignment with the government apparatus and the establishment that they're just like we're going to go along with this yeah i mean i don't think anyone has been more on top of that than glenn greenwald who is agreed who is on the substance on the substance of just about any issue you can think of a left winger right Right. A left winger. He and I don't agree on too many things, but on this issue of free speech and government censorship and, a gov and government involvement in speech, he's been, you know, he, he's been really brave as, as have been most of the people, uh, you know, covering this story for, um, you know, for the, for the Twitter files. I think some people have had some very, including Elon Musk, have had some very interesting comments about, say, Barry Weiss, who has been something 
you know, she, she came out against the banning of the journalists who were, you know, uh, reporting on his real-time location uh, in, his, in, in his private jet. There still seems to be an attitude among certain gen many journalists, if not all of them, professional journalists, that that they are some sort of special class of people to whom rules don't apply. And ironically, this is even as whatever claim they might have to that status. And years ago, I was involved in litigation and uh, representing a lot of bloggers when, when social media was about blogging, convincing judges that you don't have to have a press pass. You don't have to have credentials. You don't have to have a journalism degree to be entitled to this. The First Amendment is for everyone, right? for everyone. But at the very least, if journalists are going to assert that they're entitled to a heightened level of protection from the First Amendment, and there is some law to that effect, they should act like it. They should actually report on the things that others right. want hidden. And we're not we're getting the exact opposite. I mean, everyone who, you know, the, the press part, you know, cooperated in the banning and censoring of the New York Post and others with respect to the to the Hunter Biden laptop. Right. They're, because it wasn't their story and it wasn't their team. We got a big problem. Yeah. Well, this is what disturbs me most. And this is why there's so much animus that's, and, and vitriol that's being directed at the journo class, as we call them, is because they do believe that they're above us. And what's really disturbing is like, we all care about free speech. But the difference for, for us is like, we tend to care about their free speech and ours. They seem to only care about their own. And that's not how it works. And uh, I think that that's deeply prob problematic. What, what's concerning and, and bizarre to me is that this seems to be such a egregious, blatant, and far-reaching violation of the First Amendment where you have the government at so many levels, CDC, DHS, you know, like the list goes on and on, the FBI, that are all communicating with big tech, instructing them on what, not just who they should censor, but what they're essentially giving them the parameters by which terms of service are to be laid out so that, you know, disinformation and all this nonsense is becomes bannable. What I would like to see is not just individual cases, which, as I've already said, I really appreciate your work, and I certainly hope that you guys prevail, but some sort of actual, um, you know, broad-based, broad like, nail in the coffin of this so that we don't have to worry about it and litigate it every single day of our lives moving forward. Is there any hope for that? I think there is. Um, I, I, you know, a lot changed when um, Elon Musk dug deep into his very deep pockets and bought Twitter. I mean, you, it, it's a little bit disturbing that we would never be having this conversation if not for Elon Musk. I know, it's crazy. Because we're not always so fortunate that God will send someone down. And, you know, you can listen, there are a lot of YouTube videos about what a heel Elon Musk is and how much of a scam his previous employment has, you know, his previous business experiences have been and debunking them, yada, yada, yada. I, right. I don't know. I don't, I, none of this, none of this is stuff that I can tell you about. All I know is, the things he's doing on Twitter are of historic scope. And it's very scary to think that if it hadn't been for the moves that he's made, and, and they're already made, 
you know, what I, although there has been and there will continue to be efforts to put the genie back in the bottle, it is out. Right. But it's terrifying to think that, but for Elon Musk, we simply, it would, it would simply be business as usual. We would really be going down an absolutely terrifying path. And as Jack Posobiec and another of others have pointed out, you have to be out of your mind if you think that this is just a Twitter problem. Sure, someone, yeah. someone did a very good tweet a couple of days ago laying out all the spooks, all the former FBI counterintelligence and CIA people who are in major freedom of speech and liberty um, leveraged positions at Facebook and Google. What happened to the left in this country? What happened? I mean, they, it's what we see now. I mean, it really, this, this causes the entirety of political history of the last 50, 60 years to, to have to be rewritten. Because what we see was that all their talk about liberty, all their talk about freedom, all their talk about all the issues was nothing but about getting into power and keeping it. Right. And that's where we are now. Yeah. Well, and I think that we, I mean, there's just so much Orwellian <laughs> nature to what we're witnessing on so many fronts. Um, I think that, you know, these people oftentimes would accuse Donald Trump of being a fascist. Well, from my reading of history and from my understanding of what fascism is, this is that, you know, where you have <laughs> private businesses that are having uh, basically extraordinarily buddy-buddy relationships with the government so much so that it's, it's, dismissing and dismantling the bill of rights for the people that live here and they don't seem to have any concern with that whatsoever it just it's mystifying hopefully the work we're doing because the, you know i do think at the end of the day i mean the supreme court has let us down many times sure i think they failed profoundly in 2020 i think that there were there were cases election related cases that they could and should have taken up and they didn't I think that was tremendous cowardice um, at a time when they were really the last institution with that should have you know been able to do it. They didn't do it. They've done a number of other things that are praiseworthy since then. Sure. If this issue ends up coming in front of them, I will say this much. Based on my own experience as someone who, who has appeared in front of the Supreme Court with success on free speech, there is a, this is a very big free speech court. Very big. Okay, good. So if, if, if the trick is always getting the court to take the case, but if this seems to be a case of national importance and the fact, you know, if, you know, if it's going to take a Supreme Court decision for us to get some attention from it other than from alternative media and conservative media, then that's what it'll be. And if yeah. it's not this, then it'll be something else with God's help. Yeah, well, is there... So you said that there is a kind of a, a silver bullet approach that that might come from these types of cases. Uh, you went into a discussion about Elon Musk and how his disclosures have assisted in this cause. But like, what I would like to see is some sort of barrier that's you know litigated essentially that says, look, the government ha cannot have any involvement in setting terms of service when it comes to the speech, the political opinions of the people that live here. It well, just listen. seems like so straightforward. In the early 70s, people began to understand the extent to which the CIA and to some extent the FBI 
have been involved in monitoring domestic political enemies of the establishment. Yeah, Church Commission, right? The Church Commission was the result of that and a number of important legislative reforms, some of which have been rolled back, many of which are rolled back by the, uh, you know, by the post 9-11 litigation, I mean, mm. post 9-11 legislation. Um, Congress doesn't seem to give a hoot. Right. We do not have a two, I mean, we have, a, I guess on this issue, we do have a two-party system, although there's been, we've gotten no support on this. Right. From any Republicans. I do think after that in January, there will, there will probably be, and I hear this, you know, from people on the Hill as well, that there are members of Congress who absolutely intend to hold some feet to the fire. Okay. Good. Now that included when I first heard it, people in the Senate who, because everyone understood Republicans are going to win the Senate. Mm. Um, we're living in a time when there is nothing that Democrats are ashamed to do in terms of, in terms of corruption, uh, you know, manipulation of the system. The January Sixth Committee is is Stalinist in in nature, so it's going to be harder. You know, in the seventies, although Republicans were generally not as conservative. Democrats were not nearly as liberal. And there was a sort of respect for the rule of law. And we don't have that anymore. No. So no. it's going to be a different kind of fight. But hopefully, you know, between some remnant of the court or the judiciary system and some, you know, one, I mean, one thing I think we have to worry about is there has been a very, very strong pattern in the last five to 10 years of the FBI in particular never being held accountable for anything it does. Um, people, you know, and people in the intelligence community have faced no accountability whatsoever for their politicized conduct and for their consistent, uh, um, you know, joining in on the attack on Donald Trump, who was the elected president of the United States. Things are different, you know, and and, and and the political, the you know, the the political context is different. It's going to be a hard fight. But on the other hand, we have social media now, which we didn't have. Sure. You know, we, we can't depend on CBS and the New York Times to stand no. up for First Amendment, but we don't have to. Yeah. No, I mean, thank God uh, <laughs> we would be without hope if, if not for that. But. Uh, you know, I, I honestly believe that it, you know, it's it's a soft coup, but a coup nonetheless is is what occurred with the FBI against Donald Trump. And I wasn't even a Trump supporter, but I can still, you know, call balls and strikes. That's what I think it was, and I think that the evidence proves that out. Um, I, I did want to ask you just one kind of broader question because we've been following each other on Twitter for a while now. You probably understand that I'm a hardline libertarian. Uh, I've always been mystified by the conservatives that seem to see these things as similarly. To you know, to how I do and how my my group does, and yet still have faith in this system to be reformable. Do you think it's reformable? Well, I think there are two things. One of them is that you know my my partner Harmeet Dillon is running to become chairman of the Republican National Committee. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome. But but you know, and, and we've had the, we've had very very intense discussions about this because it, it really goes directly to your question. Thank you. Is it, is it reformable? Uh, you know, she faces an uphill battle because there are people who are comfortable with the absolutely 
shitty way that it's going now mm -hmm. and are not only not only are they comfortable with it they're comfortable saying it publicly mm -hmm. that's how bad it is for conservatives and for republicans but the other part of my answer is so so if Harmeet can't can't displace Rana McDaniel as head of the RNC, then that's another nail in the coffin of whether it's reformable, although there is a very strong argument to the effect that the best thing that could happen, and this would be, I think, a libertarian's music <laughs> libertarian's ear, is that she doesn't she doesn't succeed, doesn't see it in getting in. And then everyone on you know on the non-left, I won't even call it the right, sure. really does what libertarians would like to see other conservatives do, which is walk away. And that, that leads me to my second part. My second part is it's been a two-party system for a very long time. And I, I've been recently thinking about this some more because looking at parliamentary systems where there's an ebb and flow and you you know you can have multiple parties. And what ends up happening is there's a different kind of um, stasis, a different kind of mm -hmm. non-democratic conduct, you know, or, or trend that happens. Um, the problem with libertarianism is that as, as a political movement, I have problems with it as a philosophy also because I think it is not a moral philosophy. I think it's more moral than almost anything on offer out there. Right. But, but, but that is an end result. And in fact, if you said to me, Ron, would you rather have what we have now for 10 years or would you, or would you take five years of, of, of letting Clint run it under libertarian principles? I'd say Clint all the way. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. No, because for sure, because, because the institutions that exist now are cancers. They're yes. cancers. And they, they absolutely should be starved. The problem is that the two-party system does exist. And if you give the Democrats the complete power that they've almost pretty much already had, right. but if you don't push back at all and they end up, while we're having this rebuilding on the right, they end up appointing all the judges and letting in all the immigrants and mm -hmm. giving away all your money and, and taxing you all the way, there won't be anything left to preserve. There won't be yeah. anything left to rebuild. Well, so, the, the, yeah, this is all, this is always the balance that we're trying to find. And, and I'm the same way, actually, even though I, I kind of go from like being apolitical and just focusing on my friend's family life, local stuff, uh, all the way up to like, okay, you know, just out of self-defense, I have to be involved on the national scale political discussion um, just be, because otherwise I'm going to get ran over. Uh, so I think that everyone's having the same, you know, anybody that values liberty <clears throat> is having the same thought process. And uh, I'm of the opinion that, you know, even with our best efforts, it's only a matter of time due to the economic insanity that, that this nation will eventually fall apart. And I'm of the opinion that peaceful divorce and separation, focusing on states' rights and, and trying to get some sort of little areas that still share our belief system in human liberty, uh, I think that's probably uh, the best outcome we can hope for, but I, I'm I'm willing to be shocked and amazed and to see someone like Harmeet get in there and, and really reform things. I believe me, I I'm not rooting for the the collapse. I just think it's probably coming 
Or I think you're right, but I, but I, 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 I think that what you're saying is, I mean, there's a very strong argument my friend Bruce Abramson has made in a, in a book that he wrote about the, the new Civil War, which is that the Civil War already began. Yeah, feels we're like already it. Th we're already there. The collapse is, is underway. We just can't really see, because because we're so integrated in a way that's hard, you know, that only moderns could be. We can't really get away from each other. Right. But there are, you know, you look at the voting maps and they're red with these spots of deep blue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is like Jefferson's nightmare. All these people went and lived in cities and became complete corrupt whores. <laughs> um, but there are a lot of moving parts here. There's a lot going on with the loss of faith, the loss of, tra of, of traditional morality, which if you there's a lack of faith, all the music in the world about morality tends to go out the door. Mm -hmm. I mean, even people who are part of a faith community find it hard to hew to moral standards. So there's a lot of a lot going on here. Um, yeah, all we can do is fight the good fight. But but I do think you're right. We have to be aware of the fact that it's never going to look like, you know, a, an episode of Dragnet again. Yeah. yeah. 1990s America ain't coming back, folks. It's 90s. I'm talking about 50s. <laughs> no, I know. I, I'm talking about 90s because for me, that was the, the heyday where it felt like everything was going pretty it's, well. And that's the amazing thing. You know, I mean, when Obama was elected, I remember thinking, so listen, we've now certainly put racism and race consciousness behind us. We've now elected an American president. The vast majority of people who voted for Obama were white. They feel comfortable about it. Right. And, again, and and we can now really move on and get productive. But instead, instead, it was exactly the opposite. And we've got, we, we've become, we've gone in these crazy directions and something's got to give. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I, yeah. Well, critical theory is, uh, you were describing cancers earlier. I, I really do think that critical theory is is bringing, um, you know, kind of the cohesive nature of our civilization and questioning everything to its core. And, uh, you know, I, I'm the type that questions everything, but I, I think that there are some truths that you just have to accept at some point. And, uh, and going back and, and relitigating uh, our race relations it has just so clearly not been to our benefit. Um, and it's, it breaks my heart because I, I really felt as if we had gotten, you know, setting police brutality and some issues aside, I think that we had culturally, we were doing pretty damn good. Seems, and now, it sure seemed that way. It sure seemed that way. Yeah. Uh, well, we learned our lesson. <laughs> yeah. We, we weren't doing good. It's just our privilege speaking. Um, <laughs> anyways, Ron Coleman, thank you so much for joining us. It was highly enlightening at Ron Coleman on Twitter. Anything else you'd like to leave my audience with? Well, if they like podcasts, I have one too. It's called Coleman Nation. If, if you, if you, you know, look, Ron Coleman, just search for Ron Coleman podcast. I, I do address many of the topics that we discussed today with guests, uh, many of them people whose names people would know. And, um, you know, it's been great talking to you, Clint, and I hope we have a chance to do it again soon. Sounds good, brother. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and I wish you great success moving forward. We need people like you in this fight. And uh, we need people like you wishing us great success and doing what you do. Absolutely. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you want to support my See work, ya. go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Clint Russell. I am starting off my day in such a beautiful fashion. I get to talk to Judge Andrew Napolitano and think about how great his day is. 
He gets to start off his day talking to Clint Russell, and then he gets to finish out his day talking live to Alex Jones over on Judging Freedom. If you look in the description right now, you will be able to see the link to his channel. Make sure you go subscribe so you don't miss that. As you guys know, I have rescheduled with Alex four times now, so I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this means that Alex is back on the circuit, and it's going to happen here soon. We'll see. Um, also, later today, I have on Dr. Andrew Huff, who worked for EcoHealth Alliance directly under Peter Daszak, claims to have the true story about what happened in Wuhan. That's going to be crazy. I have Ron Coleman on to talk about the Rogan O'Hanley case, uh, where the California Secretary of State directly censored uh, Mr. O'Hanley and... Uh, yeah, Ron Coleman will be representing him. And then I finish out the day talking to Jason Burak about the insanity in the financial markets. Without further ado, Judge Andrew Napolitano, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Clint. Thank you for comparing me to such wonderful lovers of freedom. And thanks for starting your day with me. And, and yes, Alex will be on Judging Freedom Live at 3.15 uh, in the afternoon Eastern time today on Judging Freedom. And uh, he, he's a He's Alex. He's unique. <laughs> <laughs> he brings a huge audience with him. <laughs> yes, he does, man. Goodness gracious. Oh, and, look, and at who, look at who wants to get in front of the camera here. Come on, Chris. Let everybody see you. There you go. <laughs> and, and deservedly so. Alex is uh, is worth worth anybody's eyeballs and time and attention. Um, Let's start with this. We got the, uh, the city of Buffalo has sued gun manufacturers, uh, obviously based off of the, the mass shooting. They probably have some political activist mayor. Uh, that's trying to circumvent the Second Amendment um, and and pressure gun manufacturers not to sell guns in that city. That's my read of it. Uh, what's your read? My read is that is the same as yours. This is what uh, the federal government calls, or the federal rules of civil procedure call frivolous litigation. And the first thing the gun manufacturers will do is send a letter to the plaintiff's lawyer saying, uh, we hereby serve notice on you that if you don't withdraw the complaint, we'll make a frivolous application, uh, a frivolous pleading application, which would allow a federal judge to award uh, attorney's fees to the defendants for having to defend against this. You know, the, the uh, essence uh, of civil litigation is that some duty has been breached the manufacturers have not breached any duty to the city uh, of Buffalo by selling a lawful product, lawful, which Buffalo happens to be located. The state of New York has breached the Second Amendment rights of the people that live in that state so that when this crazy person started shooting uh, in the supermarket, he was shooting fish in a barrel because the people there were not allowed to arm themselves to shoot back. And the one person who was armed, uh, a retired cop, hadn't qualified with his gun and didn't know how to use it. And he fired five shots off and none of them hit this creep. Oh this is all the fault of government interfering with the natural right to self-defense. Uh, but to suggest it's somehow the fault of the manufacturer. Row. Still there. I I am sorry. It broke up for about twenty oh, seconds. No, those, those, those things happen. Those things happen. It's the internet today. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, go ahead. Uh, just finish your last thought, if you if you wouldn't mind. It's no more 
uh, the liability of the gun manufacturer for the improper use of the gun than it, than it is, Chris again, than it is the uh, liability of the manufacturer of an automobile for an automobile accident. Right. Uh, it's just an effort by government to try and bankrupt a, a lawful business that government has sworn to protect. Everybody in government, from a, from a school janitor to the president of the United States, from a National Guardsman to the governor, from a, a, a secretary uh, in the Department of Defense to every cop on the beat takes an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, which includes the Second Amendment, which includes the Supreme Court's interpretations of the Second Amendment, which recognizes the natural right to uh, protect yourself uh, against creeps when the government can't be there. Mm -hmm. um, they're failing to do their, their duty. They're doing the opposite of the, what they've sworn to do when they file litigation like this. And they're going to waste the taxpayers' dollars because the taxpayers are going to end up paying the fees of the manufacturers who have insurance companies, but still somebody's got to pay the lawyers um, who, who will be defending uh, this nonsense. Yeah, well, speaking of nonsense, uh, as you know, I have Ron Coleman on uh, later today, and he will be representing Rogan O'Hanley, who was banned based off of uh, Secretary of State of California, uh, Alex Padilla's direction, which they now have evidence of that, in fact, they were sending over direct requests from the government to Twitter, to censor this person for their political beliefs. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it, it doesn't get much clearer. I mean, granted, yes, there is a cutout here. There is a, uh, a proxy, if you will, in Twitter that's basically doing the bidding of the government when it comes to censorship. But I would love your, your opinion on this case, if you have any ideas about it. Well, I do. I mean, this this uh, happened on a larger scale with the FBI and Twitter uh, during the 2020 election. Look, government cannot move against a person without due process. Government can't deny or take away life, liberty, or property without due process. That's in the Fifth Amendment. Government can't follow, investigate, or pursue a person without articulable suspicion about the person committing a crime. That's in the Fourth Amendment. Government can't do can't compel a private person or a private entity to do something that government can't do. That's in the Fourth and Fifth Amendments both. So what do we have here? We have, in one case, the state of California getting Twitter to evaluate a, a the person's the content of a person's speech. The government can't do that, and government can't pay somebody else to do it. Uh, in the other case, we have uh, the FBI saying, these are people whose speech we're worried about. We need you to suppress it. The FBI can't do that. When Twitter does this, and I don't mean to pick on Twitter because this is the old Twitter. Sure. This is the Jack Dorsey Twitter, not the Elon Musk Twitter. But when Twitter or any company does the government's bidding and interferes with the exercise of personal liberty in a way the government can't, they run the risk of uh, violating the civil rights of the person whose liberty they are suppressing. And they may actually be engaged in a conspiracy with rogue elements or maybe managerial elements. You tell me in the California case, you have there are emails from uh, the Attorney General or the Secretary of State of California 
uh, so it's either rogue or management, uh, to suppress human liberty. That's a violation of, uh, of civil rights, and that also would impose the restraints of the First Amendment, which prohibit government from evaluating speech on the basis of its content, on Twitter, which as a private entity can suppress speech on the basis of its content, but not at the behest of the government. Right. And what would the punishment be if it were to be proven in court that they had violated someone's civil rights? Is it just well, financial? Well, there's, there's two. One is financial, and it's difficult for a jury to put a dollar figure uh, on the loss of liberty, but juries juries do that. Uh, the other is injunctive relief, imposing the restraints of the, this, this would kill Twitter, imposing the restraints of the First Amendment mm. on big tech, mm -hmm. which would absolutely prohibit big tech from uh, interfering with the freedom of speech in the same way that government is prohibited from interfering with the freedom of speech. So if I take a bullhorn and go into a residential neighborhood at three in the morning and say, vote for Trump in 2024, the government can obviously suppress that, not because of its content, but because of its time, place, and manner. If I take the same bullhorn at three in the afternoon, the government can't uh, suppress it at all. Um, mm -hmm. That type of restraint would be imposed uh, on Twitter uh, as well. Well, th this is an interesting tie-in because they're, the the most recent Twitter leaks showed that because many people have argued basically that because of the terms of service, like they were just enforcing it. Yes, it was kind of arbitrary and capricious in the in the fashion in which they enforced it. But they have the right; they're a private company; they can do what they want, right? That's the the uh, DC Beltway libertarian argument or, or defense for a while, or it had been. Um, but then we have evidence now that the terms of service for Twitter stated that they were forbidding state actors from having essentially fake accounts. And then we turn it turns out two days ago, we find out that CENTCOM had actually got their fake accounts with AI created profiles that were being used to propagandize people in, I think it was uh, Yemen, like Iraq, Russia, whole bunch of different countries. And, and they had been whitelisted so that whatever Twitter's normal uh, mechanism for removing accounts like this had been circumvented at the direction of the government. So their terms of service are basically totally fraudulent. They're just they're just a proxy for the government. I mean, they're just like an arm of the government. You, mean, you know, one one wonders why they did this. You know, the the the, the government uses either a carrot or a stick. So what was if it was a stick? What was the stick? What did the government threaten to do? If it was a carrot, what did the government offer to do? I would love to know the answers to those two questions. And, and the, the irony here is just dripping. This happened during the presidency of Donald Trump, who was more victimized by big tech and the deep state than any president in American history. I can't imagine Trump knew uh, that his Department of Defense uh, was engaged in this type of uh, trickery. For mm -hmm. his FBI, he probably didn't know it specifically, but he's been railing against the FBI for years that his FBI was doing this. And where is Chris Ray to answer for this? And where is Trump's uh, Secretary uh, of Defense to be brought before the um, uh, Senate Foreign Affairs Committee 
uh, to uh, answer for it. And where is the DOJ to sue the government, rogue or management, uh, that did this uh, to people? This is the tip of a very dangerous iceberg. I got to tell you, when I first heard about this, I didn't believe it. <laughs> and I, I made the standard libertarian argument. These are private businesses. Leave them uh, alone. But the evidence now is overwhelming and compelling that government agents persuaded, cajoled, bribed, or coerced big tech into doing these uh, favors for government. Absolutely unlawful, absolutely unconstitutional, and destructive of the freedoms of the, as I just explained, of the big tech entities uh, who cooperated. But again, government doesn't uh, do things for nothing. There's got to be, there has to have been a quid pro quo. What was it? What crimes did they not investigate? What lawsuits did they not bring? What taxes did they not enforce? What, what uh, statutes did they look the other way about? We have, have the right to know that because government has to be transparent. As you know, this gets me in trouble across the board. I don't believe in government secrets. Mm. Whatever the government knows, we have the right to know. Whatever the government owns, you'll love this, we have the right to own uh, because the government works for us and all of its, all of its powers come from uh, our consent. And if we have it, we can't consent to let the government do something that we can't do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the issue is like, can we actually prove the quid pro quo or the the uh the stick because you have all of the ceos of big tech that gets dragged up on capitol hill basically annually where they chastise them and they demand that this is the interesting thing like section 230 is put there for uh liability shield so that because they're not editorializing but now you have fairly hard evidence that in fact they are editorializing so i don't understand it seems like there's this, this middle ground that has provided them liability protection, but then they bring up the CEOs on Capitol Hill where con Congress members sit there and they say, or senators, I think in, in most of these cases, sit there and they say, we're giving you liability protection, but you have a duty to make sure that disinformation is suppressed and hate speech is suppressed and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, well, if you're going to be di directing, like, is that not already kind of in the area of First Amendment violations, if they're telling it, a private it, company? It, it, it is if they make a decision because they believe Congress has threatened them. It absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, that uh, is as reprehensible as what uh, is happening uh, in California and uh, what happened with the FBI, except that that happens to happen on, that has happened on national television. So it's transparent. Uh, and we all see it. There's such a misunderstanding of the concept of, uh, of free speech. I mean, free speech has corollaries. It's also the right to remain silent. Compelled speech mm -hmm. is as unconstitutional as punished speech. But the Congress doesn't, uh, doesn't recognize that. Well, they don't read the Supreme Court opinions and they couldn't care less yeah. uh, about whether something is constitutional or not. In, in the days before the war between the states, almost all the debates on the floor of the House uh, and the Senate were about whether something uh, was constitutional. Since then, the debates are about whether or not we can afford it. 
And of course, since the era of Woodrow Wilson and the Fed, they can afford whatever they want just by selling bonds. Used to print money. Now they just add zeros to the <laughs> bank accounts on the Fed's uh, computers. Uh, we're, we're, we're going down uh, a path uh, of perpetual war, uh, perpetual uh, debt, uh, and the destruction of human liberty. It's so pronounced that I think that your generation will see the breakup of the, of the federal government. We've talked about this before, Clint, uh, and the United States breaking uh, off into a dozen or so smaller republics because nobody, no one will use the federal government's money. No one will listen to it any longer. No one will work for it. So it won't exist. It'll collapse like an overripe apple, like the Soviet Union did. Uh, the government's debt on paper is 31 trillion. Uh, but if you look at all the money the government owes people now living, it's over 100 trillion. These numbers are inconceivable. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's inconceivable that they could be, that this, these debts can be paid. Yeah. Well, not without hyperinflating the currency, they can't be paid. That's for sure. Um, is there any intermediate solution that we have to, I mean, basically, I, I feel like a lot of us are just thinking to ourselves like, okay, so we have a new Congress that's coming in in a month. Like, is there any hope that the Republican Congress comes in there and they say, we're going to clean house? Like, this is this is so far above board that like, or, or just beyond the, <laughs> the, the realm of think reasonable that we're going to actually defund, break up, do something about the FBI and what they've been doing to people. I don't think so. I mean, if, if Andy Biggs were elected Speaker of the House, maybe mm -hmm. uh, he and his band of, of the conservative or of the Republican Freedom Caucus have some serious libertarian views in there. But for the most part, Republicans are just as bad as Democrats. It's just a different version right. uh, of a big government. Um, the, they, they all are terrified of the FBI and of the intelligence community. God only knows what it knows about them. Those budgets just keep uh, growing. Um, if, if the Congress were filled with Rand Paul's in the Senate and Thomas Massey's in the House and Ron Paul in the White House or people with that mentality, yes, there would be a chance uh, to save us. Uh, but Kevin McCarthy, and this is not pick on Kevin, Kevin McCarthy has voted for every big government bill that has come down the pike in all the years that he's been in the Congress and he's now about to become a speaker. So we're only gonna see a change in tone, probably more money for defense and more money for borders, but still more money, still money that we don't have, still borrowing uh, against uh, the future, still growing the size uh, of, of the government. Uh, it, it will take a real radical change and I hope the radical change comes about uh, peacefully. Yeah, you and me both. Well, I'll get you out of here on this. Just give me your 30-second take on uh, having the Ukrainian flag held before <laughs> the House of Representatives last night to a, a bipartisan standing ovation. Uh, it shows you that uh, the American government, Republicans and Democrats, believe in perpetual debt because they're about to borrow one7 trillion and send another 45 billion of it to Ukraine in perpetual war. Government loves war. 
and we are fighting a proxy war uh, through the Ukraine uh, against uh, Russia right now, and Republicans love it as much as Democrats. And it's reprehensible and destructive of innocent human life, in this case, Ukrainian lives and Russian lives, mostly young men, uh, and uh, destructive of, uh, of our economy by adding to the debt. You know, as, as interest rates go up and they keep going up, and as the debt keeps growing, the cost of that debt keeps getting astronomical. At this rate, by 2025, it'll be a trillion a year on the debt service. That's 25% of what the government collects in income taxes, right off the top, going to pay uh, the government's creditors. And it's only gonna get worse. Uh, and as far as waving that flag there, I don't know if a foreign country's flag has ever been uh, displayed like that. Um, it, was, it was tasteless, uh, imprudent, but, but quite revealing. Yeah, and uh, for our case and for our cause, I, I hope that the symbolic nature of it has a, a real impact. And I hope the symbolic nature of you having Alex Jones on at 3.30 Eastern today is enlightening and inspiring. And I'm, I will be tuning in live myself. So uh, 3.15 three, three Eastern, okay. judging freedom. Excuse me. Yes. Everybody, make sure you go check that out. If you want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com and sign up to become a supporting member. Thank you, as always, Judge Andrew Napolitano. Oh, God bless you, uh, Clint. And Merry Christmas to you and your family. Yours as well. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?